Hello and welcome to the Archbishop's Corner. This is where we meet each week to talk with Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair about faith, morals, the life of the church today, and how the gospel makes sense in an ever-changing world. This is where we go to find the answers to our lingering questions about the teachings of the church, living the faith life of a Catholic in contemporary society, and developing a stronger relationship with God. I'm Father John Gatzak, with many questions that you and I will ask Archbishop Blair as he responds to what matters to you in the Archbishop's Corner. Bad is not going to leave you alone just because you are a good person. Bad makes its living trying to make you forget about what is good. Bad doesn't care that you go to work on time, give to charitable organizations, and help old ladies across the street. Oh no. What you call bad times, bad experiences, and sometimes bad people are going to find their way into your life. Working its way into the lives of good people is what makes bad so bad. Bad is not going to pass you by because you have an I love you bumper sticker on your car, own a string of rosary beads, or know how to meditate. Get real. Bad is going to show up in any disguise available in an attempt to beat you up, knock you down, run you over, and tear you apart. Good. Show bad that you are made of good. You are made of divine power, infinite wisdom, pure love, and powerfully piercing insight. Show bad that you have unshakable faith and staying power. Demonstrate to bad that you are put together with the unfathomable intelligence of the chief architect of the universe who issued a lifetime warranty on the durability of your goodness. Put on your faith. Until today, you may have forgotten that you are good enough to withstand anything that you may call bad. Just for today, flex your faith muscles and shake your good fist in bad's face. It's here in the Archbishop's Corner where Archbishop Leonard Blair reminds us to put on faith to face the bad. So thank you, Archbishop Blair, for sharing your time and welcoming us into the Archbishop's Corner. How are you? Very well, thank you. Well, you're recently back from the bishops' meeting, but before we get into particulars about the bishops' meeting, how was your Thanksgiving? Very fine. I once again this year went to back to Michigan to my family uh, for Thanksgiving and uh, had a pleasant uh, time there. The weather was beautiful. I guess it was fine in Connecticut, too, which certainly makes a big difference not having to fight a blizzard or something. That's true. But it was good. Let me ask you this. What's your favorite side dish for Thanksgiving? <laughs> Well, I don't know. I'm used to the the traditional stuffing and, and cranberry stuff, and I like all that. Uh, let's look at the bishops' meeting now, if you would. And what stands out in your mind as being of special importance from the bishops' meeting this fall? Well, one thing that I um, thought was very important, very significant, of course, was the election of our, our new officers. And I was very pleased with the results. I mean, Archbishop Brolio of the Military Archdiocese was elected president, and of course I've known him since we were seminarians back in Rome in mm -hmm. the early 1970s. He's an outstanding uh, bishop and a very fine choice to be president. Similarly, Archbishop Laurie is vice president, and the others as well are synod delegates. I was very pleased with it, and I thought it was a, a very good thing. We also, of course, received some of our usual reports about uh, activities like of Catholic Relief Services and Catholic Charities USA. Our Catholic people ought to be tremendously proud and supportive of what is done in the name of the Church throughout the world in charity, one of the largest and most charitable uh, organizations in the world uh, or in our country, you know, for, for so many people. So that was very good as well. And then, of course, the last thing is uh, my swan song. I 
uh, presented to the bishops uh, some new translations, all of which were approved for the Liturgy of the Hours, and I did that in my capacity as the chairman of the Divine Worship Committee of the Bishops' Conference. But my term ended uh, with that meeting. Uh, I've been succeeded by Bishop Stephen Lopes uh, from Texas. Uh, And interestingly, to be elected to a chairmanship, you have to be able to complete your term. And since I will turn 75 before the term would end, I'm not eligible anymore to run as for the election as a chairman of a committee. Really? Now, I've done many of them over the years, and uh, that's perfectly fine with me. Bishop Lopes has asked me to continue as a consultant on the divine worship, which I'm happy to do. But I think it's time now for the, to give the younger bishops a chance. But it is a little bit of a milestone for me. It reminds me that I'm not getting any younger. And by the way, I believe we're the same age. So, uh, you know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander, too, huh? <laughs> You're right. Let me ask you about this. There's a lot of talk in the country about religious freedom. Was that issue brought up at all during the bishops' meeting? Yes and no. I mean, not directly, but when we talk about pro-life issues, when we talk about any uh, legislative updates, uh, we are always very uh, attentive uh, to uh, uh, and, and try to be very vigilant about religious liberty, yes. Let's take a look today now at... Uh, The fact that this is the second Sunday of Advent, we light a second purple candle today to represent the hope of Christ coming into the world. What can we do to recognize and honor the meaning of this Advent season? Well, I think, you know, we get to the very heart of things when we talk about the Advent season, because um, personally, I take great comfort from the readings at the end of the church year particularly the last weeks leading up to Advent and then with Advent itself, because they remind us that this world is not eternal. They talk about the four last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. And now in Advent, we talk about the fact of the comings of Christ. Yes, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Yes, he comes to us in in his word and in the Holy Eucharist, especially all the sacraments. But he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And uh, I... I think that's a sobering thought, but it's also, for people of faith, it's a very consoling thought. You know, Jesus told us that uh, in the world we will have trouble, but fear not, I have conquered the world. And uh, I think that's what has to keep us going, especially in the world today, when really there are some very bitter things that people of faith uh, and morals have to put up with and have to endure, and are challenged to be courageous um, even though, uh, you know, they, they might have to pay a price for it. But Jesus says, uh, fear not, I have conquered. In the world you will have trouble, but fear not, I have conquered the world, and Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead. So it's not just about Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. It's about the same Jesus coming again. And especially at the beginning of Advent, you know, everybody jumps the gun and wants to celebrate Christmas uh, now. Uh, but the reality is for spiritually, we we first prepare ourselves to think about other things. And then, as we get closer to December 25th, we more and more think about the commemoration of what happened 2,000 years ago. So you don't think that that's an old-fashioned way of, of celebrating Advent? Like today, I mean, we've seen stores push their sales, and, and even prior to Thanksgiving, and people uh, thinking about what gifts they're buying for Christmas. And that becomes the way modern-day people prepare for Christmas, rather well, than— yeah, the world is the world. We shouldn't. I'm not. I don't wag my finger, and you know, yeah. uh, because for many people, these the things we're talking about here are not important anymore. They've lost sight of them, and for that, we have to work and pray. 
When I was in uh, Michigan uh, for Thanksgiving week, I always do my Christmas shopping there, uh, like on Wednesday before Thanksgiving. You know, the stores already have the sales and it's, they're empty. And I buy everything, wrap it up, put it in a bag and leave it with my sister and it says, do not open till Christmas wow. for the family. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not Mr. Scrooge. I'm perfectly <laughs> fine about Christmas gifts and shopping and all that. But spiritually, we we need to also go much deeper, you know, about things. Um, and today, you know, really, I, I don't mean to be too somber here in the message, but, you know, just today as we're recording this program, there was a story in the news that for the first time now in Great Britain, there are more non-Christians than Christians in Great Britain today. Mm. And we stop and think about that. Uh, you know, we think of of, uh, of Great Britain, of ancient Christian heritage, you know. Um, uh, the other day we had a wonderful uh, mass uh, for donors of the uh, AAA who have been very generous. And a couple came up to me and said, you know, Archbishop, we help in our parish with religious ed. And they said, it's so sad that a little boy, their parents drop him off for for the instruction. And the little boy pointed to a cross on the wall and said, who is that man? Mm-hmm. You know, in other words, there's nothing at home really about uh, things that you you and I would have been introduced to by our parents Absolutely, and yeah. families. We would have had crucifixes and pictures on the wall of Jesus and Mary when, from the time we were we were old enough to, to know what was going on. And I don't mean to condemn anybody when I say this, but it's the world in which we live. And uh, we have to be people of faith. And we, and we can't just keep that faith locked up in ourselves. We have to find a way to give witness. You know, the scriptures keep talking about this. It's about bearing witness to Christ. We do it, have to do it in an appealing way, not in a condemnatory way or self-righteous way or a nasty way, but we have to find ways to bear witness to the real meaning of Christmas and to the fact that the same Jesus who came into the world will come again. Tuesday of this coming week, we observe St. Nicholas Day in celebration of the third century saint who sold all of his possessions and gave his money to the poor. Raised to be a devout Christian, his whole life was dedicated to serving the sick and the suffering. There are several legendary stories about St. Nicholas, which later become part of the inspiration for the modern-day Santa Claus. And during this Christmas season, how can we look deeper at our approach to material goods and seek ways to extend sharing to those in real need, Archbishop? Well, I think there are any number of ways, uh, you you know. Of course, part of it is uh, financial, you know, I, I pulled my checkbook out because we're getting near the end of the year, and I need to make my charitable contributions, the ones that I already haven't already made. And I try to be uh, generous. You know, I really try to go the extra mile. People mm-hmm. have been generous with me, and I try to do that as best I can. Um, and I think there are so many other things. There are a lot of people who want to do good for others, uh, our parishes in the in the local communities. And I think the main thing is that we have to try to go the extra mile. We, we, I mean, the old saying is give till it hurts. And uh, there's truth to that, that we, we don't, like Jesus said about the, the widow in the, in the temple, that she, other people gave from their abundance, but she gave from her want, and he praised her for that. Now, for everybody, uh, the, the level of, of giving is different, but I guess it's just uh, that we have to be attentive to, to doing, you know, not just the minimum, but, but doing the best we can. And also not just about money, but about our time and uh, personal engagement 
with people in some way the best we can. And sometimes that can be much more important, giving of your time to help out and to personally reach out to those individuals who might be lonely, especially at this time of year, depressed because of of the, the lack of certain people around them that have passed on or what have you. So sometimes time can be even much more valuable than the gift of money. And I can tell you something more about St. Nicholas. You know, recently I saw in the news that they archaeological excavations in Turkey had apparently found the site of St. Nicholas's original tomb. He was a bishop in antiquity. Uh, And of course, there are many legendary things that have grown up around the story of St. Nicholas, but Mm -hmm. he was a real bishop. And then, of course, at a certain point, uh, his relics got stolen from Turkey and brought to Italy in Bari. And there's the great uh, church there, St. Nicholas of Bari. And uh, just before COVID, in late 2019, we had the ad limina visit of the American bishops to the Pope. And afterward, I took a few days to go with uh, Monsignor Bill Millay, who who works in the Vatican, although he now retired uh, from Connecticut. And the two of us uh, took a little trip to to southern Italy, and we stopped at Bari. I'd never been there. And saw this uh, magnificent old uh, cathedral uh, and shrine in the basement with the tomb of St. Nicholas. And I remember, too, that you know, there were a lot of Russian people there praying. There was a pilgrimage from Russia because, of course, to the Russian people, St. Nicholas traditionally uh, was a great uh, patron, a great devotion to him. I think now, sadly, of what's going on with Russia, maybe this uh, thinking of St. Nicholas and praying to him, we ought to ask his intercession uh, for the people of Ukraine and for an end to the, uh, the senseless uh, brutality that's being perpetrated uh, by Russia and pray for the Russian people that they can overcome this. Very good point. On Thursday, December 8th, we celebrate the Solemnity of the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Celebrates an important point of Catholic teaching, and it is a holy day of obligation. The feast celebrates the conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary in the womb of St. Anne. The belief is that she was conceived free from original sin, can, can you briefly explain the concept of original sin and why perhaps Mary was preserved from original sin? Well, that's quite a question, but original sin simply means that God did not create us subject to death with, with the evils that beset us. Uh, what God created, as Genesis tells us, God saw, saw that it was good. But because God is love and we are created in his image and likeness, uh, we are called to love uh, personal. We are persons. We're not. We're not just animate uh, creatures. We are. We have a soul, an immortal soul, and uh, in the image and likeness of God. And uh, because uh, the nature of love involves freedom, you cannot be constrained to love. You have to be free uh, to embrace love or reject it. You know, in Genesis, we're told that uh, through sinful pride and the temptations of uh, uh, that come from the evil one, we uh, the human race fell. And and that so we are subject to sin and death, and all the consequences thereof, and uh, we're all born with that. But uh, it is you know when we're baptized, we are freed uh, from that bondage. But the Blessed Virgin Mary, in view of the merits of her Son on the cross, because that's where our liberation comes from, she was liberated ahead of time. That uh, even from her uh, conception and birth, she was not subject. She was conceived without sin. And that's an ancient tradition of the church that's been confirmed uh, in the in the teaching uh, that Mary is immaculately conceived. She is conceived without sin in view, not of any merits of her own, 
but the merits of her, her, her son. Let's take a look now at our Gospel reading on this second Sunday of Advent on this fourth day of December. Today's Gospel reading is from Matthew, the third chapter. And after the Gospel is dramatically presented, we'll talk with you, Archbishop, asking for your thoughts. In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather girdle around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem, and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit that befits repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So, Archbishop, what are your thoughts as you read this Gospel account of Matthew? Well, I mean, it really is uh, in in keeping with our previous uh, conversation about the nature of Advent and uh, and preparation for Christmas and the layers of meaning involved. That it's not just about uh, Christ being born two thousand years ago, but it is about preparing the way of the Lord. Uh, in this case, John the Baptist uh, preparing for Christ's uh, public ministry when he was grown into a, into manhood. And it's God's timeless word also calling us to prepare the way of the Lord. You can say spiritually, we need to prepare our hearts for Christmas. We need to understand the real meaning of Christmas. We need to prepare our hearts to receive the living and risen Christ who comes to us in his word and in the sacraments. And we have to prepare a way for him in the world uh, because we say Christ will come again. All these layers are at work here. And John the Baptist is the kind of the precursor, the the voice that is is preparing for the incarnation of the Word. John called the Pharisees and the Sadducees a brood of vipers, asking, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Then he said, produce good fruit as evidence of repentance. Shouldn't we be obliged to do the same, that is, produce good fruit as evidence of our repentance when we are absolved of our sins? Well, yes, but, you know, the first thing is to acknowledge that we need to repent and that we have sins. Today, people do all kinds of things for which they suffer cruelly, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. But, as the book of Revelation says, the pain is so great they bit their tongues, but still they would not repent. So much of, I mean, I sound like a broken record about this, but so much of the suffering that people are experiencing today with drug abuse and sexual waywardness and the so many things, you know, suicides, all this stuff. Some of it comes, a great deal of it, I think, comes from people who have kind of lost their way. They don't have anything 
to hold on to, you know, of the fu- of the fundamental truths about God and the human person. And the results are very sad indeed. So we we don't just wring our hands at that. We have to get out there and try to persuade people, to attract people to to what is good and true uh, about faith and, and, and about Christ. One of the things uh, that he says in this gospel is he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. How do you interpret these words? Well, I interpret them in, in keeping with the article I wrote recently in the transcript about the traditional four last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. And they're all very uh, real to speaks in these terms. He's reflecting that. Let's take a look at some of the questions that have been submitted by our listeners. For instance, Tricia from Milford says, in the last few years, we have downsized parishes. Will there also be downsizing on the diocesan level, such as less bishops? Will our state eventually become just one diocese? Well, Tricia, it's very interesting. Let me just say that uh, it's already happening in the United States. There are some dioceses that, that very well may be combined with other ones. There's a discussion on a very, very, very limited basis. So I'm not talking about a lot. I'm talking about a couple. But I want to be clear about this, that there's also places in our country where the church is booming, particularly in the South and the Southwest. Mm-hmm. So this is not a uniform picture of some kind of diminishment. But here in the Northeast and in the Midwest, yes, where they used to be so heavily Catholic and where there were so many ethnic parishes and such, Yes, we are downsizing. And uh, as far as the diocesan level, there are no plans for any downsizing in Connecticut at this time. And I don't know of any plans in New England uh, for that. But eventually, I mean, we're always looking at these things, I suppose, over time. We'll just have to see how things play out. But for now, uh, there, there are no plans to do such a thing. A question from Anthony from Thomaston, who says, I read an article asking the question, What's the best part of church? A few priests provided answers ranging from closeness to God, music, prayer, fellowship, and being part of a bigger picture. How would you answer that question? What's the best part of church? Well, I gather from your examples that you you can look at it from two levels. Clearly, the best part of church is to receive the body and blood of Christ, without whom, Jesus says, unless you eat my body and drink my blood— you cannot have life within you. And my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. So I can't imagine anything that could possibly be greater about being the best part of church. On the more social, human, visible level, I think uh, it is the experience of uh, worship that is well celebrated. That is to say, where we are uplifted by the music and by a good homily and by being with other people who also believe. I mean, we're human beings uh, of flesh and blood, so we can't just be moved by uh, something that that appears abstract. We have to have some concrete experience of it. And uh, so all of those things come together uh, to, to make a good experience of church. But I would dare say, too, that it's not just what we get, it's what we bring. You know, mm-hmm. today sometimes we are all put into a consumer mentality of what are you going to do for me? Uh, you know, rather than what am I going to bring to make something better? Uh, and I think that's a very deadly thing, that, that attitude of, of, um, of just being a consumer. 
we have to appreciate, go to a deeper level and appreciate uh, what mass and what your, and really what life is. It's not just about being entertained or amused or, you know, it's about what we bring and what we contribute and the interaction we have. When someone sits down in front of the television set, basically they're saying, entertain me, here I am. But that should not be the attitude that they bring to church. Here I am, entertain me. But it's what can I give to this worship experience, correct? Yes, and of course your experience of the liturgy uh, will be greatly influenced by your own prayer, your own participation. Mm. It's not passive. Uh, You know, the Second Vatican Council talks about active participation. And by the way, I think when I grew up at a time of the old liturgy, and certainly uh, that could also be active participation, even though the church, the the liturgy was in Latin and such. But if you followed the Mass in your Missal, I think in some ways, actually following it yourself in in your Missal was more active than sometimes just sitting in church now with uh, and and passively listening to what's going on. Now, I have to be careful. I don't want anybody to think that I'm uh, in these uh, controversial days about the old liturgy, that I'm championing the old liturgy. I'm simply saying that However the Mass presents itself at a given time in history, you have to bring something to it, and you have to be active in keeping with with what is going on. Catherine from New Haven says, If it's true that priests and bishops are supposed to retire at the age of 75, then why are cardinals as old as 80 eligible to vote for the next pope? Do cardinals ever retire? Well, Catherine, you'd have to ask the pope about that. It's true that we submit our resignation from our uh, active uh, position at 75. Sometimes it's accepted right away. Other times it takes a while to find a replacement. For cardinals, they're allowed to stay on longer, but when they turn 80, then they are no longer eligible to uh, vote uh, for the pope. Uh, So, yes, they do retire. Sometimes they do retire right at 75, Uh, but... um, very often they're allowed to stay on a little longer if their health and circumstances permit, and they can vote up to the time of, of being 80. 80. And uh, let's see if we can get in one last question. Archbishop Ted from Granby says, At his general audience the other day, Pope Francis offered advice for building a more mature and more beautiful relationship with the Lord through prayer. He spoke about approaching prayer without only seeking emotional gratification or as a mere exchange. He said many people pray and request favors from the Lord without any real interest in him, and we need to learn to be with God without any ulterior motives. What do you think of Pope Francis's advice on prayer? Well, that's absolutely true, that we, the traditional definition of prayer is lifting your mind and heart to God. It's not, and there are different kinds of prayer. There's a prayer of adoration as well as the prayer of petition. Yes, we ask God for things. Look at the, the Our Father has to be the supreme model of prayer because it was God's own answer to the question, how do we pray? And you see that the Our Father, first of all, hallows God's name. It, it's, it's, it's praise, it's adoration, it's, it's acknowledging God to be God and Father. And then it talks about, it asks for things, but those things are very exalted things. They're not small things. They're the big things of life. And that's not to say that we can't ask God about the small things of life, but we have to always put it in that that broader uh, context of adoration, uh, praise, and thanks, uh, and trust in God. What do you think, Archbishop, of uh, a person who, in prayer, consistently asks God for favors or things for oneself and never prays outwardly for things for family or friends 
or, or the world situation or anything like that, but just looks at prayer as a way to ask God for me, me, me. Personally, I don't think there are too many people that pray that way. I mean, obviously, we all have things that we ask involving ourselves, but I think most people uh, who are inclined to pray would also pray for other intentions, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we always have to expand our intentions further. I know I pray very much for peace in Ukraine, you know, that those people sure. are suffering so horribly. But there are people suffering in other parts of the world, too, we have to pray for and in our own country. I usually invite people when they say to me, why does WJMJ have to broadcast the news at the top of the hour? The news is horrible. It's bad news all the time. And I invite them to look at the news reports as inspiration to pray for the people that you hear about in these news reports. Like we just heard about that 11-month-old girl that was killed by her father. And wouldn't it be nice if hearing something like that, we all decided that we were going to make that family our prayer intention for the day, for the week. Yes, we always have to pray for people uh, who are uh, both the victims and and uh, perpetrators of everything. You know, uh, Jesus said, "Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, pray for everyone, uh, no matter no matter what, uh, and put it in God's hands." Archbishop, we've come to the end of our time together. Can you close the program with a prayer and a blessing, please? Lord God, you have once again given us the grace of another Advent, which we can look at our lives and look at the world in light of your coming. Your first coming at Christmas, your coming now in the sacraments and in your word, and your coming one day to judge the living and the dead. And we pray that we may uh, grow ever more deeply rooted in our faith, in our prayer, uh, especially as we look at our world today and uh, see the many situations uh, that require your healing grace. Make us instruments of your peace, Lord, instruments of your love and grace in the world today. And may Almighty God bless you all, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Archbishop, thank you for inviting us into the Archbishop's Corner. We look forward to joining you next week as well. Until then, enjoy this week. Thank you.